Hey, this is John at The Bible Project. And this is Tim, also at The Bible Project. We are both at The Bible Project currently, and we are doing a question and response episode yes. of a yeah. series yep. we've been calling yes. Seventh Day Rest. Seventh Day Rest. Although, yeah. the video is probably not going to be called that. <laughs> well, <laughs> this whole time we were saying, let's not call it the Sabbath because it's about so much more than the Sabbath. More than the Sabbath. But some of our team members are getting us to think in a bigger perspective that maybe actually calling it the Sabbath might be strategic. More strategic because no one's Googling <laughs> seventh day rest. Explain to me this concept of seventh day Explain rest. Explain to me the concept of the Semitic symbolism of the number seven. <laughs> but yeah. there's lots of people saying, yeah. what's the deal what's up with, the, with Sabbath? the Sabbath? That's right. And so yep. we'll get more Google juice That's right. if we call the video Sabbath. And it is a big part of what these conversations in this video have been about. And it's actually what a lot of these questions ha- from yeah. you guys yeah, that's have right. been about. Because when it gets practical, yes. we're not practicing the Sabbath year really so much or mm-hmm. these other festivals. Jubilee. Yeah, that's right. It's really more about, can yeah. I do this this weekly rhythm? Yeah, that's and right. And what does that look like? So in our um, last installment of this series, Real Time is yet to come out. We dedicated a whole bunch of time to talk about that issue theologically, yeah. in terms of how Christians in the first generation, in the period of the apostles and throughout history, have or have not practiced the Sabbath and so on. Um, but you all have sent in a bunch of great questions that are even just very practical, which is regardless of whether you do something from Friday night to Saturday night or do it a different day of the week, what's the wisdom about the Sabbath that uh, would be like really restorative for God's people. Yeah. So um, we're going to have some questions to talk about that, um, and then some other good questions too. So here Let's we go. Get into it. Q and R time. Number one, David from Arizona. You expressed a question that was sent in many times over throughout the, the whole time we've been taking questions on the series. Um, so let's hear your question. Hello, Tim and John. My name is David from Phoenix, Arizona. My question is, does the frequent occurrence of the number seven and the seventh day in Genesis, Exodus, and the rest of the Bible have more to do with the authors creating design patterns within the narrative to make theological claims? Or is it actually how God himself worked in history? Maybe these are synonymous, but I would love to hear your response. Thank you for all that y'all do, especially the podcast episodes. They have strengthened my faith in Jesus and helped me embrace my inner Bible nerd. I think this is a great question, Mm. and it's a question I think about Mm -hmm. often Mm -hmm. when we look at design patterns in the Bible of any sort, Mm -hmm. because you're like, wow, that was really well-crafted. Correct. And the most logical explanation is they're playing fast and loose with real history, you know? like. Yeah. Did this thing really happen in seven days or did that really yeah. whatever? Like, yeah. was it really? Yeah, that's right. I, it depends on your cultural conception of how to do history. Yes. But, which is, that's the that's the question. Yeah, so uh, let's just first, let's name it. You know, we went through a handful of design patterns in Genesis 1, seven days. Ten acts of speech in seven days. Mm-hmm. I was just talking with you this morning. Mm. I just realized this morning that the entire flood narrative is broken up into ten acts of divine speech. God wow. speaks 10 times in the course of the flood narrative, too. Of course he Which does. is a decreation, recreation story. Hmm. So it's not just the number seven. It's almost all number symbolism in yeah. the Hebrew Bible. Right. Whether it's seven, yeah. 10, 40. 40, 12 for the 12 tribes. Um, we didn't end up including in the podcast 
other little tidbits that are kind of on the cutting room floor. Mm. The way uh, mimicking Genesis 1, the way the Israelites march around Jericho yeah, for times. six days and then rest on the end of each day. And then on the seventh day is when they blow their horns. And, and they march around seven times, right? And they march around it seven times on the seventh day yeah. after six days of marching. Yeah. And um, it's so clearly a recall of Genesis 1. Yeah. Uh, and on and on. Right. Joshua speaks seven times uh, in his covenant speech at the end of the book of Joshua. So it's pervasive. Yes. This, this seven symbol as completeness or wholeness pervades the design of biblical literature. So the question is, <laughs> at what point are we fading from what, what some modern Westerners would call history into sh- just sheer literary creativity? When you say what some modern Westerners <laughs> call history, I think what we mean by that is what actually happened. Uh, that's one meaning of the word history. Really? Sure. Yeah. What's but history a- can also refer to uh, a written account that has been selectively arranged and designed. Mm-hmm. In order to highlight certain connections, it'd be like themes, a, cr- a creative points. retelling of history. <laughs> well, but any any retelling of history is a creative act because mm. there's no way to actually recreate an event because that event was only experienced by people who have their limited points of view. Yeah. Right. So if somebody writes a history of World War II, it's one person or a group, right? Yeah. Consulting whatever eyewitnesses and sources and so on to arrange an account. Right. So th- that's not quite the issue here. Because modern Westerners, yes. they, the goal, I guess most of the time, is when I'm going to write history, I want to try to write an accurate account, whether or not I'm actually doing it. That's sure. typically the goal. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so you, I would say that the value is on maximal maximal realism mm-hmm. in the representation of the events. Okay. And realism, not in the sense of just realistic, but actually matching details. This to, is what my wife wants when she asks me how my day was. How your day was at work. <laughs> or how my conversation with <laughs> yeah, whoever yeah, sure. was. Yeah. It's like, yeah. just replay the whole thing as it happened, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, totally. To, I, know, I know that dynamic. So... Here's uh, the rub, however. Are we imposing our cultural conception of what it means to create a written account of an event Mm -hmm. when we make people from other times and cultures, when we expect that they would represent an event Mm -hmm. in the same way? And so I think we're all the the way back to honoring the fact that God has chosen to um, speak to his people through the ancient Hebrew through texts that were written in the literary styles the ancient Israelites read and wrote in. Mm -hmm. And in the literature of the ancient Near East, it's not only acceptable, it's the way that you write a narrative recounting an event. The highest value isn't just realistic representation, it's also communicating the meaning, the Mm -hmm. cosmic meaning, Mm -hmm. in light of their assumption that all events that happen have both a human causal level and a divine causal level. Hmm. It it seems to me we need to allow the biblical authors to speak on their terms and through the literary styles that they were familiar with. So when you start to see like somebody's speech, like Joshua's speech in Joshua 24 is divided up into seven speech acts, Mm -hmm. you know, his uh, covenant speech at the end of the book. So the question is, did he actually stop 
and like restart seven times? Mm. Or is an author helping me understand the meaning of that within a series of design patterns? Um, and we're kind of back to our conversation we've had many times over yeah. the years. It's like about the Gospels, differences in details in the accounts of the Gospels. But does this one feel different to you? No, I mean, not completely. What about Jericho, the six and seven days for Jericho? That one's easier because it's easy to imagine that's what they actually did. Ah, I see. Okay. Ah, and so David, that's your question. Is, is this just authorial creativity? Or is this how things actually worked out in history? Yeah, because at some point, at some point, it becomes yeah. hard to mm-hmm. imagine. It becomes incredulous that there are so m- many mm. patterns mm. in human history, unless, like David mm-hmm. said, God was orchestrating history. Yeah, that's right. So that then it could be written yeah. accurately and have all its symbolic meaning. C- correct. But but correct. were the were the Israelites really wandering for forty years? Maybe it was 42 years. <laughs> right. And they're just like, oh, it's ran down because sure. that's more significant yeah, sure. theologically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And different people are going to have different, they're going to land on all ends of the spectrum here. So on one of the spectrum would be the biblical authors sometimes frame a narrative as happening within a seven-day sequence or a seven-time sequence to mm-hmm. make a theological point. Yeah. Even though the source or the oral tradition that they received or are passing on didn't have that, but they add that element to it. Yeah. And it's not just literary creativity. They're making a theological point to help you see the meaning. So that would be one end of the spectrum. Right. Another end of the spectrum would be that all of these events happened precisely according to the maximal representation of details, including all of these patterns of seven, which means Joshua stopped and started seven times and this kind of thing. I would just urge us to open-mindedness to let the literary evidence of the Bible just speak, speak for itself. Our goal is, regardless of our theological assumptions, is that we just want to hear the Bible on its own terms. Mm-hmm. And I've had these conversations before, is somebody who's maybe on the maximal realistic representation side will say, well, Joshua just happened to like stop and start seven times. That's just what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, but it's seven times in a whole set of other mountain of evidence of the meaningfulness of the number seven. So I think it's a meaningful thing that we're supposed to see a a theological claim at work there. Mm -hmm. I'm getting more and more comfortable with that. Yeah. But I know that the the rub for people Mm -hmm. is where do you draw the line? Yeah, sure. Because one place where you need to, it seems very important to draw the line, is that Jesus rise from the dead. Yeah. Did he die and rise from the dead? Yeah, sure. Or is that just a a way to make a theological claim. Sure. So you could, you could take this argument of, well, we're just taking what happened and talking about the significance. Yeah. And you could take it to a degree where now I'd be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Sure, sure. And where do you draw the line? Sure. Even there, the timing of the resurrection, for example. Right. Was it on the third day? Right. Was it three days and three nights? Was it from Sabbath? The beginning of a Sabbath to the... Oh, man. In which case, there's really only one 24-hour block with a few hours on each side of the other side. Yeah. So even with the empty tomb, yeah, the way that numbers mean things sure. is how you refer to the empty tomb. So are there certain details D- like differs. numbers that we could be a little bit more flex on, but other details like yeah. the women showing up? Well, that must have happened. Yeah, that's right. But But to say, oh, look, the time that Jesus spent in the tomb is represented by different numbers in Mm. different texts. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that, nowhere puts you near saying, therefore, the resurrection did not happen. 
what we're saying is the claim is the resurrection did happen. Mm. And in different texts, the numbers are giving different theological nuances of meaning to, to the resurrection. But it's unwarranted to say, therefore, it's all fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for a story like Jericho, the marching six times and then seven, mimicking the six days of gathering manna and then not gathering it on the seventh, mimicking the six days and the seventh day of creation. Therefore, the Israelites never had a battle with the city of Jericho. That's an unwarranted conclusion. Am I making any sense? Totally making sense. Yeah. We need more sophisticated categories between fiction and like video security camera footage. Yeah. <laughs> and in between to say an event can be represented using literary creativity, design patterns, and still be a faithful representation of, of history. This is not the last time we're going to have this conversation. No. But I know this video raised it for a lot of, a lot of people. I don't know. There's no tying a bow on that one. No. No. Thank you, David, for that wonderful question. Live in the discomfort. Yeah. Discomfort for us. I don't think it was a discomfort. It's a discomfort for us. Most people throughout history. Hmm. And certainly not for the biblical authors because they like, yeah, they love this stuff. Well, no, when you were talking, it made me think like, if you didn't do that, it's like people would be disappointed in you. Yeah. Okay. So actually, let's look at an example from the New Testament that kind of gets us in the same ballpark. Okay. Ashley from Arizona has a really perceptive question. Hi, John and Tim. This is Ashley from Arizona. I have a question for you regarding um, Jesus's words during his miracle at the wedding at Cana. When his mother points out that there is no wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then he takes six water pots used for purification and then puts water in them and then turns those into wine. Um, There seems to be a connection maybe with the six um, and then this idea of, you know, bringing the good, the best wine out, out last. But I'm wondering what the connection is between cups, wine, and the seventh day. Is that, is that a thing? Thanks so much for your thoughts and all the work you do. Yes, uh, Ashley, very perceptive observation and then also a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Our producer, Dan, was, has been saying that the questions have been getting mm. progressively more and more sophisticated. <laughs> People are yeah reading the Bible yeah it's awesome and, and yeah seeing things yeah totally so uh, this is the f- the first story of seven or seven acts that Jesus will do in the Gospel of John that are called signs mm. so seven times Jesus performs some kind of wonder or healing mm-hmm. and it's called by the narrator a sign mm-hmm. this is the first one and John also tells us that this is the first sign of Jesus and that it revealed Jesus's glory. That's right. To his disciples. Yeah. Yeah. And he's helping throw a party. That's right. So it invites the reader to see something really significant here. This is an important one. In a narrative that might feel like, well, it's kind of a random thing that happened to Jesus. It, do- you know? it is such a random miracle, <laughs> right? It's like, help someone blind see. Awesome. <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, cast out a demon. Yep. Rad. Yeah. Although none of those, no, no exorcisms in John. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, but the other b- yeah, blind feeding man. Feeding people. Yeah, that's right. But uh, let's just make a bunch of wine yeah, so we could totally. party longer. So f- f- um, a lot of things we could do in this story. Let's just highlight the things that Ashley highlights. John makes this observation that Jesus uh, uses six huge stone jars that are usually the jars the types of jars that people would do before ritual purification, either of of their hands before Mm -hmm. they eat, Mm -hmm. 
or down in Jerusalem, there were big baths called uh, mikvot or mikvah, a, a Jewish form of baptism, where before you go into the temple courts, you immerse your whole body or wash your hands and that kind of thing. So this is the thing. Purification. Bath water. Read, read Leviticus, right? It's the thing. Mm. Why does he tell us how many mm-hmm. there are? Right. Okay. Six. That's interesting. So um, there's six. And then what Jesus does is um, take these six and then do one more act that turns the six into this thing that provides for the wedding party. Mm-hmm. So it sets up a... There's six, and then there's six ordinary things into <laughs> yes. a seventh transformed into a new thing, which a new seventh thing. is helping a party continue. Yeah, totally, yeah, a completing the wedding party, completing it's like, a party. Oh, yeah. It's the last thing that happens, mm. and the whole thing of focusing in on what the head waiter, right, or the party host, party sponsor, is <laughs> um, he says, "Is listen, we had some wine before this, but like this is the good stuff. This is the ultimate." You've kept the good wine for this moment. So this wine that is created out of the six is presented in the narrative as a completion or culminating moment. Mm. So there's no way this is uh, a coincidence right. why John has told us the six mm. stone water jars. Yeah. Um, I've never noticed that. Yeah, it's awesome. So think this. Do you remember back when I showed you how the, pro- the opening chapter of the Gospel of John mm-hmm has been designed to imitate the literary design of Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, there's a, a scholar, Mary Collot. We'll make sure her book's in the show notes. Um, she's done a, a lot of really amazing work on allusions to the Old Testament in the Gospel of John. And she has a, a set of great studies on the literary design of the prologue mm. to the Gospel of John. Mm. And he's broken it into six panels. Opening line, two triads of three, and then a finishing seventh piece. Mm. And the opening line is in the beginning. Right. I mean, he begins with yeah. opening words of Genesis. So the prologue of John is telling you, read this gospel mm. like you would read... Yeah, the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible. And so he's buried sevens and the, there's seven signs. He mm. says, I am seven times. Yeah. There's all kinds of patterns of seven woven in the Gospel of John, which connects us back to David's question, right? The previous question. Mm. And that's easier, though, to think, oh, well, he just chose seven signs. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. wasn't like there yeah. was o- Jesus only did seven signs. Yeah, that's a good point. He says at the end, I could have chosen many stories. Right. That's right. So, um, yeah, this the fact that John would recognize six stone jars. But that's but that one, yeah, was there really six stone jars? Correct. Why else would John mention it? Right. Let's tee it up on either side. Let's try and be objective. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like he just was like, I should throw some details in there to to maximize the realism. Yeah, let's just say there were six. I don't yeah. remember how many there were. Let's just, just say six. No, I happen to remember. The there were six. Or, I'm going I'm to put some details in. Oh, okay. Well, or there's that side. I mean, there's two ways you could approach it, right? But it has nothing to do with a pattern of oh, creation. Oh, I there see. There just happened to be six. I, there happened and to... I just happened to mention it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There was other details that I forgot, but that one I remembered. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it is an odd detail to manufacture. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. If he was making it up just to lead the reader to seeing Jesus' act as a, like a seventh act, it, yes. it's kind of, it's an odd one. It seems more likely that it's preserving a memory. And the reason he's included it is because, like, like if we could sit with him, my hunch is he'd be like, dude, you guys won't believe this. <laughs> like we're six stars. <laughs> like that kind of really? thing. Really? Yeah. Or yeah. 
there wasn't six, mm. but he thought, you know, this, you know, what's going to really make this story sparkle? Yeah, that's right. If okay. there were six, that's right, because yeah. that helps make the point correct in a much deeper, memorable way yeah. that what Jesus is doing is ushering in new creation. That's right. In his first, so I, I think both are plausible. We don't know the answer. Mm. On either reading, the symbolism of it is the same, and I think it's learning to live without knowing. You I know when you said okay. that you yeah. said it wasn't the last time we were going to talk about that, and yeah. then we talked about and it in the here. second question. Okay, so uh, transitioning from Bible number nerdiness uh, into some more practical questions about uh, the practice of the Sabbath. We've got uh, Jesse from New Zealand. Hi, John and Tim. This is Jesse from Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you for this conversation around the Sabbath. I was wondering about the practical implications of the theological discussion that you've been having. Jews have been practicing Sabbath rest and the Sabbath observance for millennia, and yet Christians kind of gave up on that a few centuries ago. Should we as Christians go back to Sabbath observance? Um, is there something more there that I've missed? What are the implications of this Sabbath rest for us in the Christian world? Thanks. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, your question represents a question we've gotten many times, sent in many times throughout the series. In the next episode of the series, we're going to focus in specifically on the practice of Sabbath in the Jesus movement in the early centuries, and especially in the period of the New Testament. So maybe just a bit to preview or seed that, one thing to notice, because in our modern day, Judaism and Christianity are distinct religious traditions. They're perceived as diff even different religions entirely, mm -hmm. different faith traditions. And they also have, you know, going on 1900 years, like really a, a violent hostility, mm. mostly on the part of Christians towards the Jewish community. Mm. So that complicates the matter. That complicates any discussion on this subject sure. here. Because in those first generations of the Jesus movement, the very first generation was all Jewish. And they didn't consider themselves, now we're Christians and not mm. Jewish. They were Jews who saw their hopes yeah. fulfilled in the, in the Messiah. So they continued all the yes. Jewish That's practices. Right. Yeah. And there has been throughout history, whether it's small or large, there has been Messianic Jewish followers of Jesus all along. There yeah. has never not been right. a Messianic Jewish community practicing Sabbath, doing the feast days, yeah. and so on. They wouldn't use the label Christians. Sure. <laughs> They'd say they're Messianic Jews, mm. and they follow Jesus. So, there's a very ancient tradition going back to the roots of the movement. So, that it complicates the matter because it's inaccurate to say, well, Christians gave up the Sabbath, or they switched the Sabbath. Mm. What Christians are you talking about? Right. The real the issue is now, if you're not Jewish, yeah. and you want to follow this Jewish Messiah, yes. then what Jewish practices yes. should you, could you, yeah. would you pick up? Correct. So, And that's what we'll focus on a little more in the next episode that's going to come out. Mm. In a little plug. Conversation. Stay yeah. tuned. Yeah. But it's just, I thought it'd be useful to say uh, here... There have been Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus from the very beginning. Yeah. Jesus went around doing his thing and mostly with his Jewish contemporaries yeah. and occasionally with non-Jews. And so it is the case that Resurrection Sunday uh, from the very beginning started uh, 
a unique practice on Sundays. It's referred to in the book of Jude, Jesus' brother, Mm. refers to that meal. He calls it the love feast, the agape feast. Mm. For some reason in English, the word love feast sounds... Creepy. Scandalous. Yeah. It's called the agape. <laughs> Someone feast. invites you to a love feast. But, but it's, the, it's the feast where they celebrated God's love shown in Jesus. Yeah. It's the agape feast. And so you had simultaneously observant Messianic Jews doing Sabbath and doing the Sunday, Resurrection Sunday thing. Yeah. So they weren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Eventually, later on, they were seen to be mutually exclusive mm. for some people. Mm. And that's where this division got set up. But anyway, so whether or not you practice Sabbath on Friday night to Saturday night, Mm -hmm. there is, think of our conversations about the laws of the Hebrew Bible. Even though I'm not an ancient Israelite living in the covenant made at Sinai, there is divine wisdom for me in the laws of the Hebrew Bible. There is wisdom in stopping and resting. That's right. And there's wisdom in celebrating and anticipating new creation. Yep. It's a cool rhythm. It is a cool rhythm. So we had two questions that raised this issue in an interesting regard. One is Jiska, and then another question from John Chen. Jiska lives in Rwanda. John Chen lives in Malaysia. So let's hear your, your questions. I think that'll tee up a good conversation. Hello, my name is Jiska, and I come from Rwanda. So my question for this series of rest is how do we apply the principle of rest in our time as Christians? Um, what do we do with, you know, with the information on rest and the seventh day? How do we live it out on a daily basis today? What can we apply from it? Thank you. Hi, Tim and John. This is John Chin from Malaysia. I work in the construction industry here, and it's common for people to work six days a week. This has truly made me appreciate the one day of rest that I get every week. However, a lot of my friends who work a normal five-day week say that working six days in today's world can be way too tiring. Could you share your thoughts on the practicality of still working six days and resting one day in our modern world? And on the flip side of that, what are the biblical implications if I do not take a break by continually working seven days a week? Thanks for all you do, guys. I love your podcast. Keep it up. Yeah, great questions. One, one about just what's the wisdom principle mm. and the Sabbath idea. And then one question that's really practical about like what actually happens when we work too much. I thought this was interesting about the five versus six day work week in, yeah. di- in different cultures. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so actually let's start there. You know, all of the biblical language about the Sabbath is six days of work yeah. and seven. Right. Well, there's an interesting, you know, disconnect there between people who live in cultures that do the five-day work week with the two-day rest, I guess. Yeah, but advocating the, the Sabbath, and then the question is, well, which one of the rest days do you pick? I don't know. Do you go with the traditional one? Yeah. Friday to Saturday? Yeah. Saturday to Sunday? It's a big difference between <clears throat> whether or not you're working your own land mm-hmm. or you're working in your own business yeah. versus yeah. being an employee of someone else. That's right. And you're just like... yeah. What do I need to do? How often do I need to be here? Yeah. Because if you if you got your own thing, yeah, you can work yourself to the bone. Sure. Yeah, that's right. If it's farming, yeah, I don't know. Like it's farming. It's, if it's like farming. It's like the cows don't care what day it is. No, they need to be milked. And the crops don't care what day it is. Yeah. And there's always something to do. Yeah, that's right. And it's your place, and yeah. you want to keep it up. Yeah. Be a good steward. Yeah, that's right. 
Or if it's your startup. Yeah, and ancient Israel was much more like that. Yes. Ma- right, mountain, tribal, farming communities. Right. Uh, in, in hill country. Yeah. So. And in the ancient world, it, w- it was kind of ridiculous to take a day off, right? Yeah, there was not another culture that did it as consistently mm. uh, attached to the seventh day. Yeah. There were other cultures that did seventh day religious feast days and stuff like that on okay. occasion, but nothing is consistent. Mm. As the every week, of, yeah, don't miss it. Every week, and then in some months, like mul- multiplying, like right. in the days of in the first and seventh month, yeah, you have all these extra days too. So, I think depending on your cultural upbringing, that will shape your perception of how much is too many days of work. For me, having been raised in America, a six-day work week sounds exhausting. Yeah, but for somebody raised in a culture like that, it would just be that's what's normal. Yeah. So, John, your question is, um, what are just the implications if we work ourselves without any rest? Which then speaks to Jiska's question about what's the wisdom principle here. Yeah. So, we haven't really talked about this in the course of the series. Hmm. Like, if you were to actually do it, let's say it's Friday night to Saturday night. Okay. Or if you are going to observe the principle in spirit on some other day of the week, what's the value Like, what's the wisdom there? Why does it matter? Yeah. That seems obvious. Is it obvious? I don't know. Yeah. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Ah, uh uh-huh. One of them is sharpen your saw. So you can't just keep sawing. You can't just keep (laughs) going. It's going to... Yes. The the blade's going to get dull. Yeah, sure. That's right. And eventually you have to stop and sharpen your saw. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the human body, Mm -hmm. if it were a saw of sorts, Mm -hmm. you need rest. Yes. Yeah. Stay sharp. Yes. It's, so just to stay productive, resting makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is that the two biblical rationales for the Sabbath don't quite match that <laughs> more modern principle. No, it's worth observing. In Genesis 1, the seventh day is when God takes up his rest. He settles in. He wasn't getting dull. His blade wasn't getting dull. Yeah, it's not like God needs to sharpen his saw. Um <laughs> Because he gets tired. The seventh day is the day when he completes creation by entering and filling it with his presence. Mm-hmm. So that's the completion theme. Uh, and then once you get into the Exodus, the, the liberation theme, the seventh day uh, is the day when you celebrate your journey out of the darkness into, you know, complete life. Yeah. So remember in Deuteronomy, the seventh day rest is for you and your slave and your animals because mm. it's the day when you... You don't you take own care them. of everyone. Yeah, well, and but it's the day when you remember that mm. you're—they're not yours. Oh. That you all belong to God, and so you get the same rest all together. Hmm. So that's more of a you know equality liberation theme. Hmm. So you don't find in the Old Testament the reason this wisdom uh, reason of like yeah because productive? it's good for you psychologically uh. too. Uh, and I, which I'm not, I'm not saying that's not legitimate. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not one of the main biblical emphases hmm. about the Sabbath. It's to remember whose you are. Yes. And uh, that you don't own all this stuff and it's not up to you. Yeah. And that history is moving towards an ultimate fulfillment mm-hmm. of a union of heaven and earth yeah. in the ultimate seventh day rest. Yeah. That's what the biblical authors care about yeah. in developing this theme. It's just interesting because you can develop a lot of other wisdom about the wisdom principle of it, why it's mm. good for us dirt creatures, right? Yeah. And f- psychologically, rest. physically, so- socially, and so on. 
But it's also, it's worth naming to say those are ways that, that we are extrapolating from the biblical storyline, hmm. which is what we're supposed to do. I think part of ruling the world as God's image is ruling with wisdom and learning new things hmm. that align with things that we already uh, hold to be true or have as convictions. So yeah. I think this would be one of them. Yeah. So here's the thing I think about when it comes to this. If I wanted to apply the wisdom principle of celebrating and thinking about the culmination of history and mm. remembering who I am and mm. Mm. that God owns everything, and I want to know how to do that right. Yes. Yeah, sure. Because there's thousands of ways I could do it. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of reassuring when you're part of a, a ancient tradition is like, this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I was Jewish, mm. it's just like, here's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. You're just raised into I'm just, it. I'm just doing it. Yeah, sure. It's almost like there's too much freedom. <laughs> it feels like there's too much freedom uh, huh. to where it's like, where do I start? How do I do it? And how do I do it right? Yeah. And it feels like the same way of like, if I wanted to like huh. work out and have a body transformation of, of some sort, yeah, I'm not just yeah. go to the gym and just start just yeah. doing whatever I feel yeah. in the moment or yeah. watch just random people doing random things and be like, oh, I'll just try and lift those weights. Yes. I would want to have a real strategy that makes sense. And yep. I would want someone who... Yep understands the human anatomy and to like coach me through it yes and so i feel like we're all kind of out on our own just trying to figure out and by we're all you mean people who aren't torah observant or shabbat observant yeah 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 got it yeah yeah i hear that and so maybe that's where the wisdom of the christian tradition of resurrection sunday being a a weekly day not just the once a year day in the spring but the weekly day where you get together with other followers of Jesus, you celebrate God's love shown in Jesus, you sing about it, you give your resources to your common mission in your neighborhood or city or as a community, and um, you share time and meals and food with each other. Mm -hmm. That's a way that Christians Mm -hmm. um, for millennia have, I think, lived by this wisdom. Now, it Mm. it doesn't mean that they're observing the Sabbath, because right. Sunday is not a Christian Sabbath, te- technically, or historically. You're saying you can apply Sabbath wisdom to the Sunday ritual. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You can do that. It's a day to, this isn't my day. It's a day when I dedicate my time, focus, and energy. Okay. But other people might want to actually just do a Sabbath ritual on top of a Sunday yeah. ritual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know lots of people who do that. So it's, yeah, wisdom. But, but by nature, wisdom isn't law. <laughs> it's wisdom, uh, which means that there are times when you need to flex it and mold and adapt it based on culture and setting and um, season of life and, and so on. Hmm. So I think what's hard maybe in, a, in the modern Western settings when so much of our experience of religion has become therapeutic hmm. that the human like physical and psychological need for rest that can take it this interesting turn where it becomes, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm trying to get at here, but it's just a, f- a feeling in the air when I hear people talk yeah. about it. Well, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a unique time in human history where we're so connected to devices. So mm. you're just always one glance away from your email inbox. Yeah. There's just so much to be doing and your brain keeps spinning and you can just, yeah. So I think everyone's kind of realizing like, this is getting out of hand. Yes. Like, yes, sure. My body is in this constant state of like, yes, just go. Yeah, that's right. And we've got to, we've got to fix this. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, it's so, 
yeah, unhealthy over the long run. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, wisdom would say, oh, isn't, isn't it interesting how the need to unplug from the, the modern media fest uh, aligns with this ancient practice that was for the Sabbath, that some Messianic Jews continued to do on the Sabbath, that many non-Jewish Christians began to practice this wisdom on Resurrection Sunday every week mm. of recognizing that... I need a day to remember that I'm not God. Usually, uh, suggest books, mm. but I'm, mm. I want to suggest a couple because I have I have a couple friends who've written yes, about this. We both do. Yeah, yeah, we both do. Yeah, somehow, yeah, in Portland, we both we know like a number of people here in town have written good books. Yeah, on the wisdom of the Sabbath. Yeah, so yeah. Um, uh, Jefferson Bethke wrote a book called "To Hell with the Hustle." It's a great title. So good. And then um, our friend. John Mark Comer yes. wrote a book called uh, The Ruthless Elimination yeah. of Hurry. Yep. Also another great reflection on yep. rest. That's right. Yeah. And then Were I have... Were you thinking of something else? Yeah. And then I have a former neighbor, and he was a pastor here in Portland um, until he moved away recently. A.J. Swoboda oh. uh, wrote a kind of a short practical theology of the Sabbath called The Subversive Sabbath. Hmm. They're all three really great resources that will get you thinking theologically and creatively yeah about the wisdom of the sabbath lots of creative thinking because it's in the air yeah there's also a book I, i just um a friend of mine showed me we've been trying to do like a friday night thing every once in a while mm-hmm. and we just don't know what we're doing yeah and then he brought this book it's called at home with god a complete liturgical guide for the christian home oh sweet and it had like we're in advent season and it had yeah. like oh, yeah. here's how you could do sabbath yeah. in the spirit of advent Mm. Through a messianic lens, yeah, and had a liturgy of sorts. Yeah, that's sure. Really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Some good wisdom in there. Yeah, totally. Yes, you know, I, just maybe as we're um, nearing the close on this, my initial interest in this whole theme was just seeing the seven day patterns all over the Bible mm-hmm. and how prominent it was in the jubilee announcement of Jesus. Mm. So what's funny is when I really began to work this out and realized this is like a theme video. I didn't have on my mind any of the things, the things that most people want to talk about yeah. on the Sabbath. Which, which is, is a like weekly... Which is the a, weekly thing and weekly how thing. do you do it and yeah. why. Right. But it's in the air. Yeah. But I'm really glad that I've been forced to think in those areas too and think about my own life. But that's a good reminder. Yeah. And that's how we end the video. Yes. Is that Jesus says, <clears throat> I will give you rest. Mm-hmm. That's the main yes. piece of wisdom. Yeah. Which is rest comes through a person. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. The, the Sabbath has happened to history. The Sabbath has happened to history. In, in the person of Jesus. And he called it the arrival of God's kingdom. Yeah. For him, that was the meaning of the Sabbath, was his inauguration of God's kingdom here on earth as in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So no matter how you apply the wisdom of the Sabbath, mm-hmm. that needs to be yes, central to that it. needs to be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project Podcast. All this month of December, we've been kind of featuring stories that celebrate cool things happening around the Bible Project. And we wanted to give you a little window into the people behind the Italian localization team. Hey, Allison. Welcome back. Hey, Dan. Thanks. I'm super happy to be here again. Yeah. We've been taking this month, as you know, with these little vignettes at the end of the episodes, highlighting various localization efforts. Yeah, that's right, Dan. And I am excited to get back on the podcast and say on behalf of our localization team, thank you so much for your support. 
I've actually heard from several people how much they've enjoyed hearing from our Brazilian Portuguese team and the Japanese teams, and we are very grateful to introduce you to one more. Yeah, I had so much fun putting them together. I laughed a lot, and uh, I'm so glad that others are getting to hear them. Yeah, that's great. So when you join and give to The Bible Project, you're putting new energy into our ability to make videos and content available in new languages. So if you want to learn more and join us, you can go to thebibleproject.com slash vision. Yeah, that's awesome. So now you had one more team that you wanted to give a shout out to this month. Who do you have in mind? Yeah, the Italian team. So Dan, this is a unique group of people. As you know, our teams are made up of language advisors, translators, voice talent, and animation studios. And the studio that we're using for Italian is actually the same team that produced the French videos as well. That is so cool. Double dipping, I see. <laughs> exactly. So when we find good teams, we try and see how we can continue working with them. And in this case, it was great to learn that they had multiple language skills. So they are able to do both the French and Italian for us. I only have a singular language skill. <laughs> Podcasting? <laughs> if that's a language, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so today we want to introduce you to their project manager and also the Italian language advisor and also the Italian voice of Tim. Yeah, and his voice is amazing. So uh, that's so great, Allison. Thank you for coming back. Yeah. And uh, let's hear from the Italian team now. Great, roll tape. Ciao a tutti. My name is Marco and I am the voice talent for the Italian version of the Bible Project. I live in Milan, in the north of Italy, and I am really, really happy to be a part of this project because I think it can bring peace and love all over the world. Bonjour. My name is Simeon and I'm one of the project manager for the French and Italian version of the Bible Project. I live in the French part of Switzerland. I said French because we have four national languages here in Switzerland. Swiss German, French, Italian and Romansh. Ciao, my name is Valerio and I am the language advisor for the Italian version of the Bible project. I live in the south part of the boot of Italy, uh, let's say quite close to the hill. Italian is the official language of Italy, of course. Large numbers of Italian immigrated uh, to other countries and Someone said that there is another Italy outside of Italy. South and Central America have more Italian speakers that uh, you can imagine. Uh, the most live in Argentina, which has uh, 1.5 million speakers, uh, making Italian the second most spoken language in the country, after Spanish, of course. So in the second half of 2019, uh, we got started with the Read the Scripture series and what I can say is so exciting now to see the first draft videos becoming a reality in Italian. In 2020, we will continue to work on the Read the Scripture series and are so excited that the first Italian videos will be ready and post on YouTube. Please let me thank you very much for your support of the Bible Project uh, for Italy. And grazie mille e arrivederci. Thank you very much for your support in making this project possible. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much for your support and let me say thank you and goodbye in my language. That is ciao ciao, vi abbraccio. If you want to find out more about what we're up to at the Bible Project or some kind of like big picture dreams that we have for the project as a whole, uh, check out our website, thebibleproject.com slash vision.